Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Uh, hey, Julie, uh, have you ever had a computer virus and, and, and have you ever wanted to keep it and raise it? That. I have. I've got it right next to me, actually. Oh. Yeah, it's so sweet. <laughs> yeah, you really grow to love them after a while. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, their appetite is voracious. Yeah, and occasionally they get out of hand and they throw a lot of, like, naked photos up on your desktop. But, you know, that's just, that's they're just acting out. They just want attention. You know, exactly. They're just, I mean, they're being creative. Mm-hmm. And you just have to say, you, you go forward and, <laughs> and one day you'll be independent and you won't be so nuts and get me fired. Exactly. Yeah. Of course, there always comes that time where you're trying to explain your pet virus to somebody, and they're like, whoa, you can't have a pet computer virus. That's not even alive. That's not a thing. That's not a creature. And you say, what, what do you mean? This <laughs> this is my companion. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's usually like the IT people that are like, it's totally not alive. Let me take it away. Yeah, let me let me squash it like a bug right here in front of you. And you're like, whoa, no. I right. Get the way it is. Right, right. It's just I can't tell you how many jobs I've, I've, I've lost as a result of that. <laughs> But someone's got it. Someone out there has to understand how computer viruses might be alive. I don't know. Yes, uh, it, it's actually a very interesting area of study. Uh, thus, the, the reason that we're going to talk about it for an entire podcast, um, um, because you, you look at this thing uh, and it's uh, it's doing a lot of tasks and it's carrying out a lot of functions. That when you when you look at some of the the various criteria for life, it, it kind of adds up. It kind of uh, it kind of it can you can make a compelling case, right? Exactly. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not an accident that it's called a virus, right? Because right. if you look at a biological virus, uh, it's basically a germ that can only replicate itself inside living cells of organisms, right? So there's certainly uh, similarities with a computer virus, which spreads from one computer to another computer using executable code, right? Like so, in my mind, it's, it's very much like an SAT question: like viruses to living cells as malicious code is to ex- executable files. Mm-hmm. Like, boom, there it is. Right. Yeah, and uh, just to take everyone back, uh, the word virus itself is uh, from the Latin for poison. So, uh, yeah, just to throw that in there. But so, so yeah, let's look at uh, normal viruses, uh, organic viruses first. Right. Um, biological viral infections; uh, these are spread. Uh, by a virus, which is a small shell containing a, containing genetic material, and it injects its contents into a larger organism cell. Then the cell is uh, basically converted into a biological factory. Right, like it's just pushing all its cells out, right? Right, And, and yeah. it's injected its DNA, and it's trying to explode outward. Yeah, and it's just, you know, it's carrying off that basic function of all life, you know, replicate, replicate. But, yeah, and then that's what you're saying is basically the the key word is that it wants to replicate, it wants to reproduce, it must go forward. And so then, of course, you've got the computer code, which, you know, um, is self-replicating. Mm-hmm. And before computers were outfitted with modems, viruses were pretty rare. So that's why we are now so very aware of it, uh, because it can spread through a network, um, the Internet, or old school style floppy disk. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, it's kind of interesting when you compare it to... Um to the rise of uh, organic viruses in human communities. Um, you know, at, at, at one point, when, when humans were, say, living out on their own, uh, they were exposed to a certain number of viruses within these communities. Right. Then they start raising animals, uh, domesticating animals. They were living in pro- close proximity then to animals with other uh, various illnesses and viruses uh, that can 
uh, potentially be picked up by humans right. and adapt uh, for the for human hosts. And then you have cities uh, coming together, and then suddenly you have a large number of people living in uh, um, in close proximity to one another with their animals, and it just ups the ante even more. So you can compare that to the um, just the the continuing evolution and interconnectivity of our uh, our our internet and our our. Our, our communications network. Right. So it's just as, as we grow, and grow more and more uh, connected, then the potential for viruses to just spread like wildfire becomes immense. Which actually has like crazy interesting implications for us, um, if you consider that as the model, right? Right. Because right now we're like, oh, yeah, we c- computer viruses, they're a pain, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. But, um, but they actually down the road might have some ramifications on, on how we live and the sort of technology we use. But but first, just to get back to that question about whether or not they're alive, because I really do think this is central to, to what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Stephen Hawking actually said that um, computer viruses fit standard definitions of living systems, even though they have no metabolism of their own. So the computer virus exploits the metabolism of the host computer infects and becomes a parasite. Uh, and to quote him, this parasitic existence is a key characteristic of biological viruses, as is its ability to replicate only inside the cells of a living host. So there you have it. Stephen Hawking saying, hey, look, I'm not saying this is alive so much, but I'm saying that, you know, if you if you look at a biological virus, which is, you know, questionable whether or not it's alive. Yeah. There's so much that's that they have in common here. Yeah, yeah. Organic viruses are are kind of a, a gray area at times for some people. Um, for starters, uh, viruses lack most of the internal structure and machinery, uh, which characterizes many definitions of life. And that's the thing right. too. You can find various definitions of life, and you can sort of pick and choose the one that best um, fits your you know whatever you're trying to argue. Like if you want to make an argument that a, that a flame is alive. Then you can sort of find the right list and skew it, and uh, and it's kind of an interesting thought, right? Uh, thought project. What is it to be alive? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's great if you're a firebug too, because you can be like like my children. I must raise them uh, at the factory across the street. But that's a whole pyromaniac discussion. Well, that's that's another that's right. podcast. That's another episode. Uh, but uh, yeah, they like many of the um, the inner machinery. Um, that, that that is often associated with life, the biosynthetic machinery that is necessary for reproduction. Uh, and in order for a virus to replicate, it must, again, infect that host cell. Right. If you look at the counterpoint by Richard Dawkins, who says, okay, yes, I, I agree with Stephen Hawking to the point that it, it's, uh, it fits the definition of uh, system of life. However, both uh, bacterial virus and a computer virus, they, what they both lack is some sort of modicum of independence hmm. or independent thought. So I think for, for him, you know, it's the niggling question of what is it to be alive and is the process that you're independent and autonomous. Uh-huh. And again, this is a gray area because, I mean, you've got uh, computer viruses and biological viruses mutating on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, and taking over their host. And yes, it's that same sort of code that's replicated over and over again, but there are certain things that are happening to make this organism or this code actually act independently in some circumstances. Of course, this is a if and then proposition, right? Particularly for, for, uh, algorithm in a computer mm-hmm. virus. And, and again, that code we're talking about, uh, typically 200 to 4,000 bytes. Yeah. Uh, based on the source I was looking at, um, that I don't know if that's that may have swollen in recent years, but uh, but they're not big. You're not there's not like a gig <laughs> computer right. virus out there. Um, 
that would be more of the like the host as opposed to the the parasite. Right. Um, I I really enjoyed uh, reading um, about uh, about about some of this uh, from an article by Eugene Spafford, aka Spaff, or I hope the huge. Spaff. Yeah, huge huge Spaff um, at <laughs> Purdue University, uh, and he. Uh, he uh, he has a, an interesting essay uh, uh, that's available online if you search for it, uh, where he lay, lays out uh, like a, a number of different criteria for life, mm-hmm. including uh, self reproduction, metabolism, which we just discussed, uh, functional interactions with environment, interdependence of parts, stability under uh, changes in the environment, uh, evolution and growth uh, or expansion. Right. Uh, so, and just to just to go through a few of these real quick, that uh, except for metabolism, which we already discussed. Um, First, uh, you have uh, functional interactions with the virus's environment. Uh, viruses perform uh, examinations of their host environments as part of their activities. You have uh, interdependence of virus parts. Uh, and uh, living organisms uh, cannot be divided generally without destroying them. Mm-hmm. Uh, or they can only be divided to a point. You right. know? It's like you can you may be able to cut the, the limb off of a starfish and have two starfish, but you can't put it in the food processor and expect to... Uh, um, miraculous things to happen, you know, unless yeah, you have a great don't. recipe. Yeah. <laughs> but um, uh, the same is true of computer viruses. You take that uh, that code and you break it up. You just have some segments of code. Right. Um, virus stability under changes. Uh, computer viruses uh, run on different machines. You know, so you put it out there and uh, and it and it'll be you know designed to tackle like this version of Windows and this version of Windows. Right. Um, uh, and uh, Many of these are able to also compromise uh, and in some cases defeat antivirus and copy protection mechanisms. So they're out there surviving in different environments, dealing with different uh, defense systems or predators, however you want to right. frame them. And I think the really interesting thing about that is that they can assess their environment mm-hmm. and they can say, oh, this is a dangerous environment for me. How am I supposed to react to this? Or this is um, this environment's great for me. Yeah, you this know? environment's great. Let's. Let's uh, just let me do my thing here. Yeah, let yeah. me buy a couch and an ottoman and, and stick it in here and live here for a while. This presentation is brought to you by Intel, sponsors of tomorrow. And of course, the most obvious one is uh, that uh, ability to uh, to reproduce, you know, to self reproduction. Right. Um, uh, the code that defines the virus is a template. And uh, it's used by the virus to replicate itself, and it's very similar to DNA molecules um, in organic life. So um, you can again, you can make a compelling argument, but uh, but uh, the SPAF, <laughs> if I'm allowed to call him that, huge. yeah, huge makes another uh, uh, interesting analogy that I love, and that's the one uh, of the Xerox machine. All right, he uh, points out that uh, that even though a computer virus boasts a partially um, automated ability to reproduce. The virus itself is not the agent of reproduction. Okay, the computer is. This uh, and and the the example of the Xerox machine is this. Um, if viruses are alive, then the blueprints for a Xerox machine are alive, because if an outside party takes those blueprints, they can build a Xerox machine, and then they can slide the blueprints through the Xerox machine and make a copy. Mm-hmm. But the blue but but then can you look at the blueprints and say this blueprint can make a copy of itself because right. it contains the information to make a machine that can be used to make a copy of itself. Right, because outside of it, it's it's a mission, so to speak. It can't think independently. Right. Which is what it normally all boils down to, right? Right. 
But I still, I mean, I, I get totally get that. But then I think about something like Stuxnet and how co- incredibly complex that virus is. Mm-hmm. And again, yes, it's got a certain mission and it's not going to deviate outside of the, the parameters of um, the code that have been written. But to me, it's, it's a, maybe just ushers in a new era of what we think of as viruses. And maybe we should discuss Stuxnet just a little bit. Um, but this, of course, is the um, worm computer virus that spies on and reprograms industrial systems. So basically, it can futz with a programmable logic controller and then hide those changes. Hmm. So and then this, of course, happened in Iran and at the nuclear facility there. They had a bunch of things going wrong. And eventually they think it was discovered that this specific virus was going in and actually uh, changing the, I believe it was the speed of some of the rotors. Huh. So it was messing up the machinery and basically it was slowing down their ability to enrich uranium. Okay. So what does that mean to us? I mean, that, that first of all, that's, I guess, what you would call uh, computer virus warfare in a sense. Right. Right. I mean, obviously someone created this really sophisticated virus. It's and like a digital saboteur that just goes in and. And, yeah. uh, and, and messes with things, throws, yeah. throws a wrench into the, the machinery, but in a, in a, in a more subtle way. Right, right. And, and let me also back up too and say that the reason they think that this, um, was meant spe- specifically for this facility is because if you look at the instances of infection of this virus, 60% of them occurred in Iran. Huh. And it is targeted toward these, these systems. Um, but I think the problem is, is that Stuxnet could be used as a blueprint to sabotage machines that are critical to U.S. power plants, electrical grids, and other infrastructures. So that's why it's kind of a scary virus. It's not just a, hey, here's some, yeah. here's a naked picture, you know, popping up. Yeah, it, it compares, it's very comparable to uh, the, the, um, the use of biological and chemical weapons. Mm-hmm. You, you create something that uh, is, uh, you know, deployable against your enemy, you, you, pretend, you, well, with biological and chemical, you do create something that that can be used against yourself, and uh, and uh, and and certainly many of these viruses, it, there's not a whole lot of adaptation and uh, an alteration that would have to take place right. for it to be, uh, you know, a weapon that could be used against U.S. systems and uh, and infrastructure. So yeah, and actually, we haven't heard a whole lot of biological war- warfare lately. I think that was uh, largely a big, you know, post 9/11 concern. Although I think it's a huge concern still. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, to use your analogy, I mean, you've got the, think about the smallpox, uh, infected blankets. Um, now, okay, that was something that was crushing. Um, and it was awful and it spread like rapid fire. But now we've mapped the genome. We have the ability, in theory, to actually create a biological virus that could wipe out a certain ethnicities if we wanted to. Mm-hmm. So again, here's, here's the parallels between them. That's, that's, um, at the very core, you know, sort of a simple structure, but the way that it can be deployed is really complex and sophisticated. Oh, and just to uh, just to throw it back to um, you know uh, word origins and, uh, and terminology origins, the uh, the term computer virus yeah. uh, that first showed up in a science fiction novel, uh, 1972's "When Harley Was One" by David Gerald. J uh, that's G E R R O L D, and. Uh, the actual, uh, the first actual computer virus to hit the scene didn't come around till 1980. So, 
Yeah, and again, it didn't. It, it's, it hasn't really um, become so much of a problem until I don't know the last decade or so, mm-hmm. um, when people were regularly using modems. Yeah. So before that, you'd have to spread it by a floppy disk, right? Yeah. Like I can't imagine. I mean, I I haven't looked up the headlines and uh, and done the research, but I can't imagine computer viruses made you know top headlines much back in the old days. But nowadays, it's really you know not that uncommon. Right. Particularly bad virus comes around, it's gonna it's gonna show up. Um, yeah, you know, in Google and in uh, on Yahoo, in various ways, right? Mm-hmm. Adware, malware, Trojan yeah, horse—that's yeah. what they call them on the street. Um, but I mean, it really is interesting to again to look at those sort of similarities between biological warfare and uh, computer virus warfare, and what that points to in the future. Yeah, and then also the, um, you know, our laptops, our our gadgets—they become an increasingly huge part of our lives. They really become extensions of ourselves. Right. You know, so it's you get a the virus in a way. It's not, you know, it's not threatening your body, but it's threatening this device that allows you to uh, communicate with a vast number of people. Like in the old days, if you caught a virus and it kept you from talking to your mom. It meant that it was, uh, you know, somehow in, in, in uh, inhibiting your ability to speak. Right. But you can conceivably get a get a virus now, and it's like, oh, I can't use Skype anymore. I can't talk to my mom until I get a cure for this. Well, and this is the crazy thing too. I mean, you could take this one step further and look at the the guy who uh, inserted the RFID chip into oh, his yes. hand, mm-hmm. Doctor Mark Gasson from the University of Reading. He and he did this on purpose. It was a proof of concept thing. Uh, mm-hmm. He was contaminating this RFID chip. And then, you know, putting it, uh, under his skin. Um, and of course he was using it actually for a purpose other right. than that. It was access to his building mm-hmm. and it also identified, uh, himself to his cell phone or to his mobile. Right. And then he went on like a, a day, a blind date with a really skeezy PC, right? It, well, <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. He doesn't talk about that a lot though. Okay. But what he does talk about, um, is that, because he gave himself this virus, mm-hmm. essentially, in this RFID chip, that he could then pass that virus on to all the technology that is associated with him. Hmm. So some people were calling him a scaremonger. There, you know, this is a could happen, right. uh, might happen situation. But he was basically saying, well, look at pacemakers. Um, look at other implants, brain implants, all the other technology, cochlear implants that we have uh, available to us. And Wait, cochlear? What's a cochlear implant? It's a inner ear oh, implant. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. I was uh, thinking of the tailbone for some reason. The Cossacks. Cossacks. I'm like, why Why would have someone have an electronic implant on their Cossacks? <laughs> that would be kind of awesome, like an electronic yeah. vestigial tail. Yeah. That's my vestigial tail implant. Yeah, it kind of turns into an antenna maybe. I yeah, don't know. yeah. I guess no, if you had subcutaneous horns and you just <laughs> wanted to, you know, make it like sort of fresh for 2011, you yeah. could do the, the tail. Cool. We're yeah. putting it out there. Yeah. I mean, yeah. hey, Try it. why not? Um, but anyway, I mean, that is, that's the huge concern is that, um, we could then with all our, all our sort of cyborg like, uh, technology coming on board, uh, be able to transfer computer viruses to one another, hmm. which is really trippy. Yeah. And certainly, yeah, this is the, uh, this is the, you see this idea show up in some science fiction, especially when you, yeah. when you see the lines blurred. Uh, well, a lot of science fiction, I guess, when, when, when the lines are become blurred between, um, organic life and, uh, and technolo- technological life. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it certainly, you know, well, I'm not even going to go into all the variations, but, you know, it's like you get into a situation where, where we're like entering a computer environment or, or, um, or the human mind is digitized or, you know, just, just look at like any 10 headlines, um, um, you know, science headlines on the net and, and think to yourself, oh, what, how would, uh, uh how, how might computer viruses, uh, mess this uh, innovation up? 
when, uh, you know, if it's something talking about, oh, they're using devices to see into people's dreams or, you know, or whatever. Right. There's, uh, the- I know that the possibilities are endless, right? Yeah. I mean, I was even thinking about the podcast that we did about the ways that we could modify our- ourselves. And we talked mm-hmm. about the exoskeleton. Right. And how something like that could become infected. Of yeah. course, again, people would say this is scaremongering because it hasn't happened, but, you know, there is the RFID chip and yes, it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, execute any code, right? Mm-hmm. Cause it just scans, but whatever is scanning that could have some sort of, um, security problem with it and, and could be, um, infected. Right. I mean, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I'm not trying to raise hackles here. I'm not trying to get nuts, but I think it's pretty amazing. But the really interesting thing is it's, uh, you know, uh, viruses that occur naturally, uh, that's just a product of evolution. Things evolving uh, and filling various uh, niches out there uh, to do what organic uh, or any kind of uh, animal needs to do. But uh, but uh, but human uh, uh, computer viruses are man-made. They are created things. So it, it's it's like there's something in us that just could not resist. We we had to, you know, <laughs> conceivably we could have this this like pure te- technological world, and the internet would just be flawless. There would right. be there would be no viruses. There would be no um, you know virus scans popping up on your computer. But we we just we just couldn't do it. We just can't have nice things. We we have to <laughs> have to create something that can uh, that can. Uh, uh, we can mess up the other dude's computer and, and potentially mess up our own. Or passing on our flaws is what you're yeah, saying. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting, though. A lot of people will say that viruses are just sloppy code. Hmm. And when you come down to, and, and sloppy code, I guess, in, in not protecting it, um, systems from viruses. Oh, so it's like saying that it wouldn't be a problem if the systems were, were more, more robust. locked down. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, but I do, I think that's really interesting that you say that because, um, Susan Blackmore, someone we've talked about before, she's a memeticist and mm-hmm. she's also a parapsychologist, but in the skeptics camp. Does she have pink hair? Blue. Blue. Yellow. It depends okay. on the day. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. She's kind of got a wonderful rainbow of, of hair. Okay. Going Cause on. I've been looking up her articles and then suddenly like pictures were showing up in Google search, uh, you know, the little Google image search bar. And I'm like, whoa, is that her? That's, that yeah. makes sense. She's, she's into a lot of really, uh, cool areas. So. Yeah, yeah. She's she's a very interesting um, woman and she, actually if you go to her website I think you'll probably see the, mo- the most recent picture of her hair. But <laughs> other than her hair, um, she's, <laughs> she's done some really um, interesting research into this, uh, into memeticism. And, and just to talk about this, just a quick overview, a meme is basically just an idea that's getting perpetuated much like code or a virus. And, um, to go back to, uh, like, like LOL cat, like any, like yeah. on the internet, any of these ideas that suddenly like everybody just starts running with it and doing it until it becomes so annoying. You don't want to even go on the internet anymore. Exactly. And she's basically, she took Richard Dawkins idea of the selfish gene basically mm-hmm. and, and sort of ran with it and said that language and communication is information that's copied with variation and selection. So a meme is, is an idea that's self-perpetuating and essentially it takes ideas and, and moves them in a viral fashion. Right. So that none of that is a surprise to me, is it to you? I mean, no, that, no, that makes no. perfect sense to me. Um, so she also says this is based on universal Darwinism, that that algorithm that he sort of accidentally came up with, which was, you know, if you've got variation, if you've got selection, um, if you've got replication, which is also heredity, then you will have some sort of um, basically evolution or you'll have design that came out of chaos that was independent of any sort of thought or mind hmm. uh, behind it, which is really interesting. 
So she takes this idea one step further, though, by saying that we're not just these gene machines that are replicating ourselves um, and mem machines that are, are replicating our thoughts, our ideas, uh, but we're also tem- or team machines, which is technology memes, hmm. basically. So what she means is that we're pe- we are perpetuating technology and that we are the hosts. Oh, so <laughs> so this gets into the to, to the whole like what does technology want argument mm-hmm. that uh, that it's an extension of ourselves and that that ultimately like we are we are facilitating the, the technological evolution. Exactly. I mean, yeah. she she goes um, on to say actually that we we think we have a choice in the matter mm-hmm. that it's us who who decided to. Uh, perpetuate the internet, um, oh, wow. and so on and so forth. So and, not the virus, the computer virus is not only a virus, but techno- technology itself is, is potentially a virus. the virus. Yeah, uh-huh. exactly, exactly. Yeah. So she said, that we're basically the hosts and they're just writing on our backs until they can begin self-replicating themselves. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, I'm sure they'll shed us. Um, but until hey, then. Who got to go to the moon first? Who got to go to Mars first? Who got to leave the solar system first? It's machines. That's <laughs> they've been they've been working us for for decades. They totally have. I mean, she oh. says too, like our brain is actually evolving for them. Hmm. The way that our brain is processing information. I mean, some people will say that the the brain is just a, a computer, but of course that's um, that's that's sort of not a correct analogy. Yeah. But to- I, certainly, we get to the more we live with computers, the more we want to think the mind is a computer and. It, right. It gets into that whole, and then it, like, I think it also gets into the whole argument, uh, like, you know, in a previous episode, we talked about the interconnectivity between the, the, the brain and the gut and how you are more than just a brain. You are also this entire body. Um, but we want to apply the computer model to it and say, we are a brain and the rest is just hardware. Right. Um, so. Right. We want to say, right. We, we, uh, we like the the computer model. We want to become the computer model, and the computer model has told us this from the get go. Wow! You want to become us, I think. Uh, but it really is a very interesting argument that she makes, and she talks about cyborg technology and the different ways that we are trying to mesh our humanity with mm. technology. So there you go. Yeah, that's. I mean, my, my mind is blown a little just talking about it. So. Yeah, and, and it always, of course, it leads me back to the all roads lead to the technological singularity. Right, the the day right. when computers uh, take that uh, light speed jump, become uh, bigger than us, um, more uh, more competent than us, and just completely skyrocket, following Moore's law, and just uh, just evolving at a rapid rate until they're just uh, machine gods. Right, leaving us in the dust. Yeah, but potentially still loving us. A, a god I can know, can I love know. even his or her creators, right? So, yeah, I know, yeah. I know. I love. I really do like your benevolent version of it. <laughs> I'm going to stick to that. It makes me feel better. Well, we'll see. Or we won't see. Well, maybe we'll see. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's debatable. Somebody will see. What do we have on the books here? Oh, we have some uh, listener mail. Do we not? We do. Yeah. It's just been pointed out to me. I hadn't really noticed, but there's a there's an awesome uh, robot noise that happens on the podcast whenever we do listener mail. Oh, yeah. 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 Which, which sounds to me like, uh, it makes me think of like Maximilian, the red robot from the black hole, like coming in, giving us, uh, giving us the, the, the listener mail. Giving us the listener mail thumbs up. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's actually setting closer to you. I think that's where the robot left it. Let's see. Shall we start with this one? Um, this is from John and his subject line was coffee beans from animals. Oh, yes. This, uh, this is which we discussed in um, the oh, Animal the, Junkies Yes, Junkies podcast. of the Animal Kingdom. That's right. 
And he says, on the Addicted Animal Junkies podcast released today, you two speak of excreted slash fecal coffee beans. Julie said goats and lamb says cats do the dirty work. It is actually palm civet cats, which are not cats and not monkeys, as some stories call them. Although another coffee is made from Formosan rock monkey vomit. Oh wow! Well, that was that's the most confusing explanation of all. I have no idea what the animal is now. Yeah, I know, and that's it's funny because I always thought the civet cat was a, a a cat that was indigenous to Africa. I could be wrong on that, but uh-huh. um, in my association with a civet cat is that they use the uh, anal glands um, or some of the tissue or something from it in Chanel Number no. Five. Oh, okay. Yeah, to give it sort of the the funky bass note, I suppose. Well, that's great. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. Uh, but thank you, Joan. That's that's. Uh, we're gonna have to check into the monkey vomit. These animals business. have a tough life. They're just constantly eating coffee for us and uh, dying for our Chanel Number no. Five, or at least undergoing some uh, perhaps unpleasant tinkering in their anal glands. Yeah, yeah, it's possible. And this is from Mo on um, on our Facebook page, and it says Kopi Luwak is made from coffee berries that have been partially digested by wild tree cats. I think JD Simon was talking about the legend of the first discovery of coffee. The story goes a goat herder in Ethiopia saw his goats eat the berries and then uh, started going bonkers. So he took the beans to some monks who made it into stew. Hooray for coffee! All right, cool. Yeah, I thought that the goats were involved with this. Okay. Yeah. Goats, the original uh, caffeine freaks, right? Okay. Coffee flavorer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, if you want to find out uh, more, though, about uh, viruses and computer viruses, uh, you should definitely uh, come to the How Stuff Works uh, website, and uh, you can put virus or computer virus in the uh, search bar, and you will get all sorts of interesting results. We have a number of articles that deal with these uh, very related topics. Uh, and also throw uh, technological singularity in there. Uh, Jonathan uh, Strickland wrote an excellent article about that. So if you're still a little foggy about what it is or what it what it means, uh, it's a great article to read. Remember, you can always find us on Facebook or Twitter. We are Blow the Mind on both of those. And you can always old school drop us a line at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.